Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome again to Upstate Issues. I'm Diane Donato. Today is a special day for one of our stations where this airs. WGY is celebrating 100 years since it was first brought on the air. And that's a big deal for the station, of course, but it's also a big deal for Schenectady, the capital region. It was a huge technological advance in so many ways. We have with us today Chris Hunter. He's the Vice President of Collections and Exhibitions at MySci in Schenectady. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You have done a lot, and I mean a lot, of research on the history of WGY as we approach this centennial. And uh, you have got an exhibit there, and you've got also all kinds of online resources that you've put together. And I know this is something that you've devoted a lot of time to currently, but also 10 years ago, I talked to you about this when we were looking at our 90th anniversary. So let's start out with why do you find this so meaningful? It's just one of the greatest inventions to come out of the region. And at my side, as part of our innovation archives, we happen to have this really rich collection of WGY materials from audio recordings to 4,000 photographs, of which about 1,000 are online now. And in artifacts, you know, some of the early microphones and some pieces from Howard Tupper. And it's just really, I mean, broadcasting entertainment began with WGY. So what more fun thing to talk about than that? And having a huge impact here in the capital region and in Schenectady. And so these are some of the details that somewhat have been debated over time, but it feels like we're getting more and more pinpointing. WGY may not have been the first radio station in the nation, but we were one of the top, what, six or seven, or one of the first. Yeah, it was roughly around the 10th licensed commercial station, and the, the second one in New York State. And the technology, how much of that actually, the genesis of that was in Schenectady? Uh, with the technology, the scientists at the GE Research Laboratory, they really helped de develop the vacuum tubes and the electronics that made modern radio possible. Now, the engineers like Walter R.G. Baker, they, they developed the transmitting equipment to make the high-powered transmissions possible. So, so without these engineers and researchers, you know, Radio might have eventually gotten there anyway, but it would have been a bit different. It had to start somewhere. Exactly. And these were GE researchers on the whole, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Irving Langmuir was the first industrial scientist to be awarded a Nobel Prize in 1932. They 
built one of the first tube radios ever in 1914 that's actually in our collection. It weighs about 200 pounds. And going back further than that even, an engineer named Ernst Alexanderson built a piece of equipment called an alternator, that a, a giant motor generator set. We have one of those also. It weighs about 4,000 pounds and is too heavy to be on our exhibit floor. But this alternator would help generate radio signals. And, and you can never really use it at home, but, but it was a great tool for Canadian inventor Reginald Fessenden in Christmas Eve 1906 when he makes the first voice broadcast ever of radio and scares a bunch of telegraph operators on ships in the North Atlantic. Because they were able to pick it up. Exactly. And, you know, they had their headphones on listening for telegraph signals, the, the dots and dashes, and then all of a sudden they hear somebody singing in a violin playing. That must have been so odd. And along those lines, what would you tell us about when radios actually became something that people had in their homes? And when WGY began its broadcasting, who might have heard it? Because probably not a lot of people had the equipment to pick it up. Well, that was the surprising thing doing research on this. And and you have to remember, we're also a very kind of creative and technically adept community and have been for well over a century now. So in kind of ahead of the times on, on a lot of these maker trends. And so, so in doing research, it turns out that half of the community actually had radios by the time WGY started. But radio was a much different thing then. They had these small radios called crystal sets. And you take a little quartz crystal or galena, you know, lead crystal, and it would actually kind of generate just a little bit of electricity and it could receive radio signals. You, you couldn't really tune them and, and they were really kind of fairly weak signals. But when, when WGY started broadcasting, I believe it was over roughly 360 meters, and that was kind of the, the standard for these, for a lot of these crystal radios for the other radio stations at that time. So they were putting these together, hoping to pick up signals from maybe for KDKA, for instance, might have been one of the uh, first uh, registered stations, commercial licenses, right? Uh, okay, it's actually interesting. If you, if you look at the early newspapers, you know, they... They not only list WGY locally, but they list KDKA, you know, like WBZ over in Boston, WJZ down in Newark. And so, so there wasn't a lot of interference. So, so you could hear these long ranging stations. And how amazing that must have been for people. Uh, at this point, there were some telephone lines, right? Although, were they fairly rare? By, by the 1920s, telephone had gained popularity, and they were pre pretty well strung. I don't think they might not have been quite transcontinental yet, but 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 in and that's actually how the early network broadcasts happened. They would actually wire. They would locally they would direct wire, like to the Kenmore Hotel. They actually ran a wire from Schenectady to 
to the Kenmore, but to go to New York City, they would rent telephone lines or telegraph lines. They preferred the telephone lines, but, but they were apparently really expensive. And also at this point, we're talking about 1922, uh, there would have been lots of people would have had a phonograph. So the idea of being able to hear a voice separate from your own household, it, it wouldn't have been completely new, but radio must have opened up just the idea of being able to reach people so much farther away and get information from so many people. I just, I find it fascinating how much of an impact it must have had on society. Oh yeah, the, the, the first broadcast, they, they didn't mention how many people heard the first broadcast, but I think one of the follow-up broadcasts when the New York governor, Nathan Miller, did a talk at Union College for the for the 17th anniversary of Rotary on February 23rd, 1922. And that one there, they estimated that it was actually heard by about 250,000 radio operators across the country. Which is amazing. And that's another interesting thing about the reach of the signal and, and the power of the uh, transmitter that they were broadcasting. And of course, there weren't as many radio signals to interfere with it, but WGY then, which wasn't at 810, where it is currently on the dial, it was elsewhere, but still, uh, it could have been heard so far away. Oh, yeah, and, 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 and the reports came in from you know, north of London, Ontario, Cuba, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, et cetera, et cetera. That's really just amazing. Let's talk a little bit about what some of the early programming, quote unquote programming, would have been. I don't know if they referred to it at that point, but what were some of the initial types of things that people would be able to hear on WGY? And and that ended up being one of WGY's Fortes early on was, was because it was created out of the publicity department of GE and not not out of the engineering department like like the Westinghouse stations were. You know, their their focus was was on entertainment and news and information and kind of being a community asset and giving goodwill back to the community. So so they they did a fair fair number of music concerts. They they did a lot of talks. For instance, they commissioned the the Home Economics College at Cornell to to do a series of women's talks. So it's like how to select meat, yeah, diets for expectant and nursing mothers, kind of talks like that. That would have even been in the very early programming, right, right from the beginning. And so, so health notes was a regular thing, you know, news and stock quotations and the sports scores actually and and then then within a couple couple months they you know they were actually broadcasting about four to five days a week for about two hours a day so it actually took took them quite a while to build up to a full schedule but but in august 1922 they create the first radio drama a play called The Wolf. It was adapted from an older older Broadway show from, from the early 1900s. And they pretty quickly realized that, that in order to kind of create the theater of the mind, as Howard Tupper had called it one time, to kind of create this visual image, you know, you're not just reading the play, but, 
but you need the music in there and you need the sound effects. So they created this kind of whole new entertainment, this whole new entertainment medium. And the uh, people who provided the sound effects were they eventually, I learned this at your exhibit, they were called the Foley operators? Oh, yeah, they were actually called Foley artists after, after the person who brought them into the sound movies. But they were actually doing it before Foley. And so how did they make these sounds? Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. They actually, they, a wide, wide variety of things for, for hoof prints, they found pretty, pretty quickly if they really pounded on their chest good. Like, Sounds like hoof prints yeah. to me. Yeah, we, we had at the, at the museum, Probably we did an exhibit about close to 20 years ago on, on radio and television. And we had one of the sound effects performers from, from WGY during World War II come in, a woman named Dorothy Sweeney. And, and she did all these demonstrations. Like, like if you take a box of macaroni and cheese and you get the rhythm just right, you can make it sound like a train. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They had doors built in the studio. You know, you open and close the door. Crumpled paper would be running through leaves or, or fire. They built this giant metal metal sheet. That that would be thunder. And and early on, each each performer was responsible for their own sound effects. That pretty soon gave way to to specialists and and ultimately recordings. But, but every once in a while, they still needed their, their own special custom sound effect. One story that I'd heard Martha Brooks say, at the end of World War II, they were looking to simulate the atomic bomb. Now, there was no sound effect for that yet. So they tried all sorts of things, and finally somebody went into the bathroom and kind of flushed a toilet, and they all said, that, that's it. So they recorded the sound of the toilet, and that became the atomic bomb. Wow. I'd never heard that one. Where were these performers drawn from? Where did they come from? Were they local residents, or did, they, did Schenectady start to attract people? Uh, for, the, for the early dramatic performers, they were primarily local. I mean, it's actually kind of interesting. You had these Schenectady engineers, then you had... The early announcing staff was largely drawn from the State Teachers College of, at Albany. And, and Colin Hager found this theater group in Troy the Mask and kind of their leader, Ed, Edward Smith. And he brought, brought this theater group over. And some of them only hung around a couple of years. Some of them, this one, Frank, Frank Oliver, he was with the WGY players over, over 10 years. They found a college sophomore named Rosalind Green on a, who came through on a 
tour in 1924. And even though women in college at that time weren't supposed to actually do the extracurricular activities, she she kind of snuck away and under under assumed names started appearing on WGY do, doing the radio plays, and she, and she became so popular at it that after she graduated she she had moved downstate to to teach. But but the bug kind of kind of kept at her and and she started her her own radio theater group. And, and started doing them on stations down there and NBC and became one of the leading radio actresses. All launched out of WGY in Schenectady. Yes. Yeah. Do you have any sense about when they put these dramas on, whether or not they had a lot of time to practice them or whether it was kind of what we would refer to now is a, in an emergency rip and read? Generally, it's, they, they tried to keep it to about, about one a week. So they did actually have, have time to perform and prepare the scripts and kind of make the sound effects notations, you know, but plan the music. So, so a lot of planning actually went into those. And generally they were able to do re- rehearsals, but there were other times where, where somebody wanted one at the last minute or the thing they were planning, they decided, okay, this isn't good enough, we need something else, and, and they'd kind of pull it all together at the last minute. We're going to ask you about some more of the personalities who've come and gone here at WGY, but first, uh, we are going to take a break. Just before we do, uh, we're going to run something from really almost, if you're listening to WGY, almost at this exact moment was when it first was broadcast. But Colin Hager, you mentioned him earlier, and this that we're going to play is, I think, from a 50th anniversary reenactment. But he was here, and tell us who this was. Colin Hager was the first announcer on WGY. He was, he was the, then the station manager, and kind of, except for a little tour out in Buffalo for for a few years, he was the station manager until about 1946. And here we go. Colin Hager speaking. This is radio station WGY in Schenectady. W for wireless, G for General Electric, and Y for the last letter. In our city. And from that, we're going to segue just to another thing, which I, I think also may have come from our 50th anniversary. Uh, another important personality here was Edward Rice. Tell us who he was. Yeah, Rice was a local violinist who was kind of the, the go-to guy for the music programs. They actually estimate that he appeared on about 35,000 programs. So some of these programs were, were just local. Uh, others were actually national broadcast. They originated at least 15 or so programs at WGY that would then be broadcast nationwide over NBC. And this is what he said was the first song that was ever played on the first musical performance, correct? Correct. Yeah, a song called Romance.
And we are back. We're talking with Chris Hunter. He's the vice president of collections and exhibitions at MySci. If you get over there, they have an incredible display of memorabilia, uh, this great exhibit on the 100th anniversary of WGY. And we're talking about what an impact this made here in the capital region, but really around the world. Uh, yes, it was maybe not the very first, but it was first in some aspects of things that it did, and it was one of the very few. And, and really, life was never going to be the same for people after this became a household item. Exactly. They, I mean, and besides the dramas and the sound effects, you know, they, they did the first remotes. I mean, the speech by Nathan Miller, that was actually a, a remote from Union College on their third day of broadcasting. The remotes at that time, they, they built a truck that, that would actually go around and was, had a transmitter in the truck that would then transmit back to the, to the transmitting equipment and building 40 at GE and then would be kind of heard at the studio, which was in the old Building 36 at the front of the plant. Which is a, a big feat of technology and of the on-air people who were making this happen. Yeah, and and in another kind of popular early program, every, every Sunday morning would be turned over to church services. They thought that was important for people who were either sick or, or elderly and couldn't actually get out of the house to go to church. So they broadcast a wide, wide number of different de denominations. I think they'd actually rotate them on a, on a regular basis. The creative applications just must have been open-ended for them, the ways they could think to use this. There was also a sporting event, I think, that they may have been first in bringing on air. Yeah, you know, they, they did some of the first football games. They actually went, went down to... New, New Haven, Connecticut at the Yale Bowl and broadcast Harvard and Yale. They, they were involved in the 1922 World Series broadcasts. And one of the recordings we have at the museum, this a sound on film recording from, from 1929, that's actually the oldest surviving recording of a basketball game. That's a, the Schenectady High School team was in the Eastern States Championships in Glens Falls. 1929. So yeah. tell me, did they actually have an announcer also doing a little play-by-play? -play? Were they part of what started that in they, this? They did. They brought one of the NBC announcers, Graham McNamee. No, not a household name today. He was the, the sports announcer of the 1920s. But he mostly did, did baseball and boxing. Like in boxing, he did the famous Dempsey-Tunney fight in 1927. But, but for basketball, he apparently didn't know anything about it, so he learned the game on, on the way up to Glens Falls on the That's very funny. And, and you know, it was into the vernacular is very much different than you'd hear, hear a basketball announcer today. You know, they, they don't miss, they, they failed. <laughs> Somebody fell down, he's like, he's down on his ear. <laughs> That is very funny. And, you know, it's funny just to think that he was cramming for it. I think a lot of people still have to cram just to keep up with all the information around them. Uh, tell me, I know that in the exhibit, and I've seen it again, it, it's wonderful. You focus a lot on the first 60 to 70 years of WGY. And we have, you know, just a few more minutes left. What are some of the other, do you think, major 
uh, aspects or personalities that we should be thinking about? Oh, it's with the with the first fifty years, and and actually three people that kind of bridge the bridge the gap into past, just about past fifty years would be kind of Howard Tupper, Earl Pudney, and Martha Brooks. So Martha Brooks, her, her given name was Ir, Irma Lemke, and she'd come to WGY to be an actress, and then got got pulled into many other directions. She got her name Martha Brooks because she hosted a household tips show called the Market Basket. So so it had to her her name had to match up with the MB. But but she got tired of, of doing what she called the the recipe and household hint shows and actually focused her show on women's issues. So she's talking about women's health issues and the in the 1940s, kind of long before that was otherwise really allowed in broadcasting. She, I think if I read some of your research, she even had a gynecologist as a regular guest. Yes, yeah. And I'm thinking that at that time, there were a lot of people who probably weren't comfortable with hearing the word gynecologist said aloud. No, no, and talking about men, menstruation and, yeah. and venereal degree and venereal disease. She actually said she almost got fired for, for that one. But but she persevered. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and then she also directed the FBI in Action television program, or the FBI in Action radio pro drama, which was interesting because that program was actually approved by the FBI. Her and Earl Pudney would actually go down to Washington, D.C. to the FBI and research scripts out of actual case files and they did that show for for about 10 years that's incredible to me that they had that kind of a relationship and obviously uh, at the fbi they knew the power of this new medium and i believe they helped with generating leads through this yes yes they there were some that were kind of unsolved cases that they would do that and and it, there's a letter in the exhibit from, from Hoover kind of thanking them for, for doing this and kind of increasing the public awareness of the FBI. You mentioned Howard Tupper earlier, too. What was part of his role here? Yeah. Tupp did, sounds like a little bit of everything. He, he did their various times, the, the sports, the weather, the news. He was actually one of the first weathercasters in broadcasting. And he also did a lot of special events. So he'd broadcast from the Baseball Hall of Fame for the induction ceremonies from what's now the Aerosciences Museum when they created the GE Air Research Laboratory there, and they did a big air show. And, and his most famous one was, was probably in 1941. They sent him up to Lake Placid to ride a bobsled and broadcast from a bobsled. They strapped a 40-pound transmitter pack to his back, and, and off he went. That is some fun audio, and that audio still exists. Is that something that people could find through the MySci exhibit? Yeah, yeah. That that's actually on our online portal the through the New York Heritage. So so that's up there. We actually got the, the original 
transcription disc, this big 16-inch disc of, of the program from Howard Tupper's family. It's uh, unfortunate that more hasn't survived from the very early days, but you do have an incredible collection. I think a lot of it, you mentioned some families that have donated things to you, but a lot of it came from GE, correct? Yeah, yeah. the core, the core of our collection did, did actually come, come the, the photographs especially were part of the GE photo collection that we have that's a total of 2 million photographs. So there's about 4,000 from WGY and others, others from, from WRGB and from the GE Research Laboratory. And so, so it's, that's really an amazing collection. You know, we've got, got a number of things from, from WRGB and from Earl Pudney's family. And just last year, we got a scrapbook from A.O. Kagashell, who was one of the early announcers and a longtime program director at the station. There's so much to be proud of. Uh, it's all part of our Schenectady and Schenectady County history. Chris Hunter, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Upstate Issues is a production of iHeartMedia Albany. This program is available as a podcast at WGY.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.